Hello, I'm Luke Clancy and you're welcome to a special edition of the Culture File Weekly. We're recording this programme in front of an exceptionally beautiful live audience. They are exceptionally beautiful and very ecologically sound as well. Thank you all for coming along and for being with us at this uh, live version of the Naturalist Bookshelf at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin as part of Dublin Book Festival. And we're here to celebrate what was for many uh, a great draft of inspiration in the darker days of the pandemic when Paddy Woodworth manifested on Culturefile and began taking us on a tour of his bookshelf. This evening, the tables are turned as Paddy has invited some of Ireland's great naturalists to make their choices for inclusion on the naturalist bookshelf. So over to you, Paddy, for some shelf stacking. Thank you very much, Luke. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. I'm just going to take you on a little tour, introducing the panel. The first panelist we have is Tina Claffey, who is a wonderful photographer, and she's produced two books. A Portal is the most recent, and when I invited Tina to participate, I also invited poet Jane Clark, not knowing that Jane had chosen an image of Tina's for the cover of her next book. Now, you can't get this book here today because it's not out yet. And finally, introducing Richard Nairn, um, who's an ecologist, environmental consultant for many, many years in my own native county, Wicklow. But most recently, he's taken to writing books, uh, Wildwoods, which is about the woodland he's restoring on his own land near Ashford and Wild Shores, about the magic of Ireland's coastline, because as well as being a very good naturalist, Richard is a rather good sailor. But to start off, Tina, would you like to talk about John Fian's book, The Wildflowers of Offaly, and maybe a little about John Fian, who I know has been very influential to so many of us as a writer and as a great naturalist. Yeah, my, my story with John Fian goes back a long time, actually. Um, I went for a walk with him about 10 years ago, in the bog after living in Africa for the bones of nine years. And I was very lost when I came back, as you can imagine, mid-recession uh, in the middle of November. Um, and I went out for the, a walk with this particular day. It was late summer. And it was in a bog that is just out the road from me now, just outside of Borough called Killon Bog. There was only about eight of us on, on the walk. And um, before we even went on the walk, he handed each of us a little loop, which is like a little hand lens. And as he walked and talked about the flora and fauna, he was handing us back each um, little bits of, like a raft spider, handing us sphagnum moss, handing us sundews. And he was encouraging us to look through this hand lens at, at the species. And it absolutely blew my mind. After, after living in Africa for nine years, where I was surrounded by, I was immersed into the wilderness and being so lost when I came back, um, to be immersed again in a microscopic way opened up my excitement again, and it, it, it gave me a renewed lust for my photography again. And so I invested in a macro lens, which, because I wanted to capture what I could see through that little that hand lens. My first book is called The Wildflowers of Offaly. It's a big, beautiful book, um, my Bible, really. It's an identification book, of course, but it's so much more, really, because John explores the personalities of these flowers. He explores them as beings in themselves. Um, his emphasis is on the ecology of the flower, and that is how the flower works. 
The actual flowers, as we probably all know, are the reproductive organs of the plant. But the plants are so clever, and for millions of years, way before we arrived, plants have been adapting to in tune with the insects that would visit them, because the, uh, many plants use wind to, to carry pollen from one plant to another, but they employ insects to do the job, most of them do. And for, for millions of years, plants have been evolving to the tune of, of the insects. And what I, love, what I love about this one sentence here that kind of blows my mind, this, the splendor of their architecture is attuned to the senses of mind of the visiting insect. And I find that just incredible. And I'd really highly recommend this book just to go back over when you go out and discover something, come back, and you'll find it in here, and you're going to find out so much about the plants that you have found with this book. Um, Jane, I'd like to ask you to talk about a book that's also very dear to me by Nan Shepherd, very un unusual author, uh, called The Living Mountain. And one of the things I think that unites us all, in a sense, and in unites the books we've chosen um, is, and you can even see in John Fee in, 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 in a book that in one way is an identification book, but it's also about, I mean, Nan Shepherd explores this a lot, is that we go to nature to find out about nature, yes, and we may be interested in science or very interested in science, yes, but we also go there, I think, to find out about ourselves. Yeah. Well, when you told me about this event, Paddy, invited me to do this event, I immediately wanted everybody to know about Nan Shepherd. And now maybe lots of you do already. It's such a short little book based around the Cairngorms in right up northeast Scotland. Um, and the most important sentence in it is where she says uh, to have gone out merely to be with the mountain as one visits a friend with no intention but to be with him. And I guess that idea, then you can take that and to approach a tree, to approach a river, to approach a little piece of land, the way you would a friend, giving them that attention and that interest and that concentration. But one of the things that's very interesting about this book as well is that it was put away in a drawer for over 30 years. She lost confidence in it. Um, she got, I think, one rejection. And many of us as writers know what that's like. It breaks your heart, your first rejection. But she then thought, no, nobody will be interested. She had written it. She'd finished it at the end of the Second World War, 1945. It didn't come out until 1977. And it's a nature book, but it's also a philosophical book. There's a very much an influence of Buddhism in it, I would say, the way that she, the way that she writes. And, and you see what she has learned from the mountain and uh, how it has changed her life. And again, if you think about you know, when she was walking in those mountains, you know, she was walking there in the 20s and the 30s, you know, with a long dress on her, a long skirt. I mean, if we can only imagine what she was doing, she stayed out overnight, she walked barefoot in the mountains. She knew every inch of this massive, the Cairngorms are massive. And, you know, I love, I love her particular take on the mountain and I, I would just highly recommend it. Thank you, Jane. Um, the next book Richard is going to talk about is by another Richard, Richard Maybe, a very great nature writer, 
and I read this book a long, quite a long time ago, after I'd had a, a difficult, distressing, depressing time in my life, and I found it really, really helpful. Um, it's called uh, Nature Cure by Richard Mabey. Thanks, Paddy. Um, this is a book that uh, strongly influenced me, and um, maybe is, he's often been described as the greatest living British nature writer. And uh, he may have been overtaken by others recently, but um, he certainly has done that. He was the first nature writer that really inspired me back in the 1970s. Uh, I wouldn't say the first, but one of the first. And um, his book was called Food for Free. I'm sure many of you know that. It's, it's really an early book about foraging in the wild. This book is very different because um, he, he wrote many books, and, and, and one of the biggest projects he took on was a thing called Flora Britannica, uh, which was a massive effort involving multiple authors. And when he reached the end of that and it was published, um, he experienced what many writers have, which is nat uh, writer's block, which means that he, he, he couldn't move on to the next project. And he lost the inspiration. And in fact, he went into deep depression and um, was hospitalized and, and many other things, which um, he managed then to, to write this book um, during his recovery. And there's a, a nice section here which just explains that uh, quite well. This book will be a record of how things turn out during that first year, but it will also inevitably be an account of my own life in the aftermath of illness and of what I felt and thought dipping my toe at last into something approaching adult independence. It's become customary on this side of the Atlantic stiffly to exclude all personal narratives from writings about the natural world, as if the experience of nature was something separate from real life, a diversion, a hobby, or perhaps only to be evaluated through the dispassionate and separating prism of science. It has never felt like that to me. And since my recovery, it seemed absurd that with our new understanding of the kindredness of life, so-called nature writing should divorce itself from other kinds of literature and from the rest of human existence. And I think that's very deep because I've been through that same experience myself. Um, I've been through depression and um, it was nature that brought me back to some degree of stability because I realized that um, it was there all around me all the time and it was, it was a form of inspiration. And it was only when I began to realize that by involving my own life in the writing and my own experiences, it opened it up to a, a, a much wider audience that would otherwise maybe be left cold by the, the scientific kind of approach. So that's one of the reasons I like this book by uh, Richard Maybe. I think one of, the, one of the things that really struck me when I read it was that he, kind of, he's, he, he feels that he was brought up, as he was, very much in a kind of classic British Darwinian approach to nature. And everything was classified and everything was about competition and struggle. And, uh, and that ruled out responses to nature, kind of joyous responses to nature. And he talks about a particular moment 
Uh, and I think for Richard and I, and indeed for Jane, this is, this is an experience we now luckily can share in Wicklow again, is he sees red kites, which had been reintroduced into his part of England. He sees 40 or 50 red kites doing this extraordinary social, socializing flying that they do before they roost in the evening, maybe for an hour, maybe for two hours. And he just suddenly thought, he said, I, I can't know, I can't pretend to know what they're feeling. But he said, there's no reason why I shouldn't imagine that they're playing, that they're socializing in, in a way that I can empathize with. And that was kind of a breakthrough moment for him. And if you watch Kites in the Wicklow Sky at night now, it's a bit like that, I think. Jane, going to another poet, yes. Michael Longley, his latest collection, I think, isn't yeah, that right? That's um, right. Slain yes. birds. Slain and birds. Again, yeah. I think it's interesting when we go to nature. I mean, at first you may go to nature for the kind of oh, you know, the spring flowers and all the all the pretty things and all the inspiring things. But there's also great difficulties in nature. People like Annie Dillard write about as well, and I think Longley confronts that. Yes, he very does. much the, the the difficult aspects head on. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I could have chosen, say, selected Longley or collected Longley, but I wanted to show you. You know, this has just come out this year. Michael Longley is eighty two, eighty three, and he is writing at the height of his powers, and I find that really exciting. I mean, you know, this is his fourteenth collection. I mean, he is. Obviously, he's well recognized in Ireland, but all over the world, he is seen as one of the greatest contemporary poets. And one of the things I heard him speak a number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago in UCD, when he said, to write a nature poem now is a political act. And I suppose what he was getting at is in some ways, nature poetry ha had become a bit disregarded, a bit seen as lesser work, as not very cutting edge. It was seen as, it was kind of dismissed often, and unfortunately Mary Oliver has been dismissed because of that. Whereas Michael Longley was saying, nature poetry is at the cutting edge because this is what we need to be confronting and what better way than with poetry. And of course, to my, I mean, I've just learned so much from Michael Longley. And when, you know, the days when I feel I can't write another poem or I'm stuck, it's Michael Longley is one of the people that I go back to. And there's always, he always gives me a way in again uh, because of the kind of attention he gives. One of the things he talks about is soul landscape. I love that expression. And he would say, you know, that one of his sole landscapes is Mayo. He also has one in Scotland where his daughter lives and also one in Italy where he visits often with his wife. He's written a lot about the First World War. He's written a lot about the Holocaust. But he's also written a lot about what's happening to nature now. And of course, the slain birds. I mean, it is a quote from Dylan Thomas, but of course it's about the slain birds of our contemporary lives that he's referring to there. So, you know, it's a book that's, it, it's mournful. It's about, you know, it's very much about mortality. I mean, I don't think you can study nature without uh, thinking about mortality. We were saying this earlier on the walk earlier. It's all about birth and uh, procreation and death. Um, but he does it with such, uh, such love, such attention that it doesn't, 
doesn't bring you down about the future. It gives you hope and it makes you want everybody to love it the way that he does. But maybe I'll just read one really little short poem of his. I just chose one short poem of his. Some of you will know Bog Asphodel, um, <clears throat> and I'm sure Tina knows it really well. Um, but anyway, so this is a lovely short little poem. One of the things is he is very distinguished by writing very short poems. And uh, as I heard him say, most poems, much too long, much too long. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I agree with, actually. I think if it can be said shorter, all the better. Anyway, Bog Asphodel. I hope I'm growing old the way Bog Asphodel grows old. Seed capsules in October, lovely as the summer flower spikes radiance, are nearly rusty orange beacons of the underground. Thanks, Jane. I, I really love that, that poem, and, and Jane drew my attention to it. I, I hadn't, I hadn't, I've, I've, I've got it now, but I hadn't got the, connect, the collection until Jane mentioned it to me. And, and, and I was saying, there's an earlier poem of his that, that I've known for about 10 or 15 years, and I now can't find again, which expresses a similar idea about, and it is actually Bog Asphodel again, but the idea that a flower in seed is, can be just as beautiful as, as the flower itself. And again, in terms of dealing with mental health issues in a way, you know, and I think once you understand the cycles of nature better, it's actually much easier to reconcile yourself to the cycles of your own life. And that, of course, you know, we use the expression in English, gone to seed about a person, as if it's something bad, you know. But actually, the seed is the whole point, and it's the beginning of the next life. So you see autumn and winter differently, I think, when you watch nature more closely, maybe. Richard, I know we're coming to your great love now, I suspect. I think if you had to choose one book, it might well be this one. I don't want to speak for you, but uh, Richard Lloyd Prager, uh, The Way That I Went. You've been with it yeah. for a long time, yeah. haven't you? I thought you were going to lead into my going to seed, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll... Um, well, well gone to seed. One. Robert Lloyd Prager um, lived to the age of 88, so it gives me some, uh, some hope. He was uh, a polymath. He, um, he qualified as an engineer. He spent most of his adult life working as a librarian in the National Library. Uh, and he was really um, a spare time naturalist. He spent his weekends away down the country walking across the mountains and the bogs and the, the coastline. And he did some absolutely monumental studies uh, of particular areas which still stand today. This book, which I'm, I'm going to, to refer to, called The Way That I Went, has that same character that the other books have, that it interweaves his own life and his own experiences uh, with the description of the landscape, which he, he so much loved. Um, Prager had a particular love of the islands of Ireland, those little fragments of, of landscape that lie off the coast and, and often represent something that has disappeared from the mainland. This particular extract is, is about the Blasket Islands in, in um, Kerry, where he, he was around the turn of the beginning of the 20th century. And at a time when there was still a fairly healthy population of islanders living there and subsisting on the primitive farming and, and, and fishing that they, they carried out. I confess, when I recall the Blaskets, I mostly think of snails. 
When I botanized there, one of the party was A.W. Stelfox of the National Museum, who was investigating the mollusca. The island children, consumed with curiosity, followed us about and watched with astonishment the collection of box nails and slugs. Presently, we went home to our usual dinner of one herring and potatoes. And when we emerged again, a deputation was waiting for us, half the children of the island, bearing cans, boxes, saucers, cloth caps, and whatnot, all full of crawling mollusks, which they told us a penny or two might add to our possessions. It was difficult to explain to them that only certain rarer kinds were sought for. When they realized that their labor had been in vain, the whole of their spoils was emptied at our feet, and for the rest of our stay, the cottage inside and out was alive with these interesting but unwelcome animals, which, with misdirected energy, penetrated to every corner and wrote their slimy autographs on wall and floor and ceiling. <laughs> I think you can see the, the, the humor in that and his, his love of the people as well of the, as the landscape and the nature. It struck me like what Jane was saying about Nan Shepherd walking up, up mountains in her long skirt. But Prager, he used to go out botanizing, which could mean a weekend where he would walk up to 50 miles, and he would wear a tweed suit. That's right. He thought nothing of actually wading through rivers or uh, struggling through bogs up to, up to his waist in water. There's another lovely piece in this, I, I'll just pray see it, where he and his brother were much younger and they were very adventurous and they were um, exploring the coast of County Antrim and they had to get back in order to catch a train. He didn't drive or he always travelled everywhere by train or by walking. They decided that they'd walk along the coast as far as the station but they came upon these inlets and caves which blocked the way. So they simply took off their clothes put stones in the pockets of the, of, the, of, the, of the clothes and threw them across ahead of them and swam <laughs> across. And, and, and they found they had to do this about five or six times before they reached their destination. Yeah, and maybe it's kind of like there was talk about, you know, should we travel, should we take flights, but also should we drive? I mean, you know, I will drive five miles in Whitlow so I can spend more time in the place that I think is really interesting. But I probably should reconsider that and maybe think about war. I'm not going to wear a three-piece suit. Or uh, <laughs> brogues. Think, think about walking it. But no, he's, it's an amazing book. If any of you don't know it, I'd really, really recommend it. So, Tina, you, your final choice brings us to one of the great classics of nature writing, Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Yes, this is a gift I received from John Feehan, uh, the first edition of Walden's uh, from Henry David Thoreau, published in 1854, even has the, the smell of the ancients in it. And it really is the story of, of Henry's account of his experiences over the course of two years, two months and two days in his self-sufficient home that he built himself in woodland at the edge of Walden Pond um, in the New England woods in Massachusetts. The book itself, I suppose, is a, is a call to abandon a materialistic existence for, for a simple life and to find spiritual truth through awareness. But just to describe what he, what he says, he says, I went to the, to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Which is many parallels there with, um, with Mary Oliver, 
with her when death comes poem. But as I say, there, there are many observations within this book that really resonate with me. Um, one of them is live in each season as it passes, breathe the air, drink the drink, taste the fruit, and resign yourself to the influence of the earth. This is, uh, really resonates deeply with me because I, I visit the bog regularly throughout the seasons and I find it really essential for me to do that because to me it's like a language that I'm constantly learning. Um, each bog to me has, a, has its own presence, like it's, it's an ancient soul and, and to be present using all my senses to witness and experience the cycles of life within the living, breathing carpet it changes by the minute, by the hour, by the day, by the season, and it really keeps me grounded and in communication with nature. I find it really, really important for me. I find myself, actually, if I go to a bog sometimes, if I haven't been there in a while, that I'm, I'm silently apologizing to it. <laughs> I really am, you know. Um, and uh, I, I ask nature to, to, to forgive me and, and beg her to, to show me something. And they always, if I follow my gut and my instinct, I'm brought down a different path and something is revealed to me when I slow down and only when I slow down. Um, there's, there's, I have other quotations as well, can I go ahead? Um, I found in myself and still find an instinct toward a higher or as it's named spiritual life, as do most men, and another toward a primitive rank and savage one and I reverence them both. I love the wild, not less than the good. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm religious in any way, but I would see wild nature as my church. Um, I have moments of the divine out there. Um, by freeing my mind and, and absorbing what nature is showing me, the bigger picture is revealed. Um, much of the creatures out there ooze this self-assured knowing that I, I really find hard to put into words. Um, and I thank all of them that allow me to take their portrait. Um, I, I can just tell about one experience um, I had. I, I, an emperor moth caterpillar that I'd been looking after for quite a while, um, I watched grow as a tiny caterpillar. And eventually, this particular day, it emerged after nine months. I felt like, I felt like a mother myself. It emerged out of this um, cocoon. And because she was drying her wings, I could get up really close. And she, She's completely unfazed by me being there. But the most amazing thing happened while I was photographing her. Um, this, the male arrived to, to mate with her while I was photographing her. And I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe my luck, but um, the male can detect her from up to four kilometers away because when they emerge, when the female emerges, she re releases a pheromone, which is a chemical signature into the air. And um, he arrived, and all I can say is, they stayed together for like half an hour. I was right beside them. And the sense of peace, it was like a, this golden light and this sense of peace with them because they had fulfilled their, their life purpose because his life purpose is to find her and continue his bloodline and her purpose is to reproduce. And within, they stayed together for about half an hour. I went for every single angle, thanking them all the time. And then he left. And then about two hours later, she laid her eggs and... Um, so I was photographing the eggs, and she stayed with the eggs. And then, right before my eyes, she started to deteriorate. Um, her wings became ragged, and her colors all started to fade away. And she, but she stayed with the eggs, and then she fluttered her 
wings, and up she flew, up over my head, and up and off. And it was divine and tragic, and, but incredibly peaceful at the same time. It was like her, her work was done, her life was fulfilled, and off she went for the rest of her few days, I imagine, that she had left. But to see that cycle from, from caterpillar to adult to like that whole cycle, it was just such a privilege. And um, I suppose that, that, that's the essence of, of to, to capture that, to have the honor of capturing that was, was mind-blowing. Thank you. I think that's, I mean, I think what you're saying, and I think it's coming up with, with everyone in the books we're talking about, that, you know, whether you consider yourself formally religious or not, and I certainly don't, um, but I do think if you think of any of the great traditions of meditation are all about paying attention. The more attention you pay, the more you're rewarded. Thank you all very much for coming. I hope what the panelists have said this afternoon will lead you to read more in nature, but above all, more to go out even more than you do already into nature for the pleasures that have been described. And of course, to motivate us to try and do something to save it. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.